Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Boys in the Band podcast. But before we get into this one, we've got a quick message from our sponsors. Now, we know that out there we've got lots of musicians, we've got lots of producers, fellow podcasters, even listening into these episodes. And I'm sure there's plenty of you out there who deal with audio files on a regular basis as well and if you do you know that it's easy to get lost amongst all of the various demos and versions of a file yeah indeed and we've been in touch with a new tech startup called orcs uh, who are looking for beta testers for their software anyone who signs up gets 10 gigabytes of free storage and the ability to easily share their files with collaborators and discover like-minded creators yeah so if you've been frustrated by the clunkiness of storing and sharing music then head to aux.app forward slash boys in the band. That's aux.app slash boys in the band, all one word. Sign up today to become a beta tester for their software and get that 10 gigabyte of free storage. Yep, get on that. And thanks very much to Aux for supporting the Boys in the Band podcast. Uh, speaking of which, let's get on with this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richie Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And on this week's podcast, we speak to Mark Greeny, formerly the lead singer of JJ72. I say formerly because since the band split in 2006, Mark has been working at the British and Irish Institute of Music. And that combination of his experiences with JJ72 and the work he's doing now, uh, teaching aspiring musicians like Fontaine's DC have come through his classrooms, really gives him a brilliant insight and he's very interesting to listen to. Yeah, yeah, really is a uh, really interesting guy. Uh, JJ72, of course, broke out right at the start of uh, 2000. And it was uh, fascinating to hear from Mark uh, the shift that he saw in just a couple of years in the guitar music scene. The debut came out in the year 2000. The second one followed up in, in 2002. And he really didn't notice a big difference just in those two years. Um, the band formed in Dublin, uh, but their rapid rise took them out of Ireland very quickly. And by the summer of 2000, they released that self-titled debut album and they were playing Glastonbury. But we were taken aback a little bit around that time, 2000, Glastonbury. Although we were quite low down the bill, the reaction to us was something we'd never experienced before. You know, it was exhilarating. And we knew there was something really tangible there with regard to the kind of the devotion or the, at least the way we piqued people's interests because I think we would have resided more in the fan base wise a lot of Manning Street Preachers fans you know a lot of placebo fans that kind of very very devoted kind of thing hmm. so it was a great starting point with regard to like bigger gigs and it was I remember it was I think it was my 20th birthday when we played Glastonbury uh, so it was a pretty good way to celebrate 20th yeah. birthday you know 
very good way to celebrate your 20th birthday, I'd say. <laughs> I can't remember what I was doing. Richard, I don't know if you can remember yours, but... Certainly not. Not no. as good as that. <laughs> not as good as that? No. Probably not mine either. <laughs> um, and not long after that, they were touring with Coldplay, Embrace, Muse. And I guess when your band takes off that quickly, you just assume that's how it's supposed to be, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you know no different. And uh, just go with the flow, I guess. For mm. Um, but yeah, when your band does take off that quickly, there's not that time to sort of map it out and think about where you're going to take the band. And I think uh, Mark hints at that when he says they finished their second record. They saw the scene was changing, really weren't sure which direction to go in with their third uh, their third album that uh, was never released well, yet, um, and, uh, and actually led to their eventual split. It's a bit of a spoiler, Rich, for what comes next in the podcast, that yet. Yeah, yeah. Little Caesar, little Caesar. <laughs> yeah, it was very interesting around that, wasn't it? Also, this idea of how important timing is in the music industry, and he suggested their first album landed at just the right time. Second one, not quite so much, but I certainly love that debut in particular. And if you did as well, then I think you're going to enjoy what's coming up. So here he is, Mark Greeny from JJ72 on the Boys in the Band podcast. Right, on this week's edition of the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by frontman of JJ72, Mark Greeny. How's it going, Mark? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Good to have you on. Looking forward to this chat. I'm a big fan of JJ72 back in the day and must have played that first album, I don't know how many times, so uh, <laughs> looking forward to getting into that one. But Mark, we always start this podcast with our sound check and three quick questions to get us going. And the first one is always, whereabouts are you? Dublin city centre, where I live. Very nice, very nice. You can see just outside a little sneak peek of Dublin and the windows behind you. What's going on in Dublin at the moment? Lively? Yeah, it is lively, yeah. It's um, like anywhere, I suppose, post-pandemic, you know, it's properly getting back on its feet. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it definitely was back on its feet around St. Patrick's weekend. That's when we knew everything was back to normal. But it's great, yeah. It's a great little city and, uh, yeah, very lively, great place to be, yeah. Yeah, fantastic city. Love it there. Um, next up in the soundcheck, Mark, we always ask our guests what you're listening to at the moment. So are there any artists that you're particularly into right now? Oh, um, yeah, it's quite uh, pretty diverse. I've always listened to classical music, so I'm listening to lots of different classical music at the moment, but uh, also getting down the route of soundtracks. So the most recent soundtrack I've been kind of listening to on repeat was, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie, The Card Player, I think. The, the, uh, it's about the, the ex-Marine in Afghanistan or Iraq, and he's a poker player. I think it's called The Card Player or Card Holder. I should know that, but I'm not very good <laughs> at names things, as you'll find out as we talk. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. And uh, third question, Mark, uh, is what are you playing? Are you working on any music yourself at the moment? Yeah, I am. I mean, I've been, you know, um, I've always worked away in music, kind of just in the background, just keeping things going because it's it's part of who I am, I suppose. Uh, but it was only actually over the past 12 months where something reignited uh, and I, I started looking back at all these demos and this, I'd accumulated all these different bits of music. I started to make sense of them and do a bit of a quality check on them get rid of some of the stuff that was just very embarrassing and then focus on some of the stuff that works. Um, so yeah, but yeah, weirdly enough, uh, just started 
started work essentially pre-production on a, on a record. Uh, I suppose he called it a solo record. I don't know. I don't know what it's, what moniker it'll go under, but um, started working with a great producer, kind of creative collaborator here in Dublin. He's in a bunch of other acts, but I won't mention right now because I don't want to, I don't want to put a hex on it. I'll just say, yeah, working away <laughs> on something. So the aim is very much to actually get back out and play at some point realistically. Would it be the end of this year? No, probably early next year. But um, it's definitely something that feels like the right time to do again. And it hasn't felt like the right time since way back when. Wow. Yeah, great to hear. The comeback is on. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very exciting. Um, but let's go way back when, Mark. Uh, we talked to bands on this podcast from that 2000s uh, era. And your self-titled debut album, JJ Sense 2, came out right at the start of that decade, in the year 2000. And you would, of course, built up to that. Uh, forming in the late 90s they even had a single of the week in 1999 on radio one with october swimmer um so tell us about those early days and forming the band in dublin uh, what the music scene was like at that time you know we're talking about the back end of the brit pop era uh, just before that next noughties boom took hold um so what was that phase like for you guys yeah i was again i was thinking about this rich before before talking to you and i was trying to like um Looking at, I know like a lot of the bands you talked are kind of a little later into the noughties. So it was that kind of, we were in that, yeah, 2000, 2001, so early. So we, I think a lot of what, what would have influenced us, you know, was the 90s American alternative stuff, you know, more than a, more than kind of a brick pop scene or anything. Like, yeah, we, we were obviously teenagers and aware of and liked aspects of that scene. But, you know, we were Nirvana kids, essentially. Smashing Pumpkins, those kind of bands. And we we try to uh, emulate, some would say borrowed heavily from uh, some of those bands. <laughs> and it was interesting because in the 90s in Ireland and in Dublin in particular, we were going through a phase societally where, you know, the economy began to boom. And you got to remember in Dublin for a long time and in Ireland for a long time, you know, relatively new country, essentially, a new republic. I should say, you know, mm -hmm. so it was actually in the 90s was one of the first times since the foundation of the state in the early 20s where uh, there was an identity re-burgeoning uh, among uh, that was that was departing from, say, the, the more traditional ideas of what Irish music was, you know. So, uh, so for example, as a kid, I wouldn't have grown up with trad music or anything. It, it would have been a diet of Elvis, Roy Orbison, The Stones, stuff like that and then cousins would have put me on to Depeche Mode, American bands and things like that. So myself, Fergal and Hillary, uh, the other members of JJ72 were, we weren't necessarily being informed by even the Dublin music scene at the time because we like, you know, we were kids, we didn't go to, it was quite a small niche kind of thing, didn't go to gigs until we were a little older. Um, so when we did form, we were taking kind of a bit of American type alternative rock. Uh, yes, definitely some Irishness in there, but it was more from the literary sense. It's more from Irish literature, Irish art, poetry, um, rather than music. And I think being honest, you know, at the time, we were pretty happy to say that. Well, I was, I was a little pup shouting about it, how we, didn't, we weren't part of any scene in Dublin. And it's funny because we weren't part of any scene because I didn't really know anyone in it. So it was easy to say you're not part of it. 
then in later years, I certainly encountered some people who were part of that scene going, I remember you, you saying you <laughs> didn't want to be part of whatever scene you know about. It, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the basis of the band, really, you know. Well, we'll just contrast that then, Mark, for us with, I think, the first summer of 2000, um, when the debut album was coming out in August, I think, I think you played Glastonbury, Reading and Leeds, these big shows. Just contrast that then for us from what you, the, the scene that you were trying to avoid in Dublin to suddenly, you know, breaking out um, and obviously over here in the UK, getting playing these huge I shows. Think, I think, Pete, the, the whole thing was we're very idealistic the way most young musicians are, you know, and these ambitions to whatever, world domination, all that sort of stuff. But we definitely were, we wanted to go to the UK and to the US and play those shows um, because, you know, we were very cognizant of the fact that Ireland as a market, if we were going to use that parlance, is very small, you know, mm. and it's pretty easy to be that big, that be that big fish, excuse, excuse the cliche, but, you know, so we wanted to go to the UK. So basically w- things happened quite quickly insofar as we were doing the usual kind of, <clears throat> like I'm sure loads of bands have said this to you, uh, you know, those kind of splitter bus kind of tours, you know, doing all that that circuit. Um, but we were taken aback a little bit around that time, 2000, Glastonbury, uh, although we were quite low down the bill, the reaction to us was something we'd never experienced before. You know, it was exhilarating. Hmm. Um, and we knew there was something really tangible there with regard to the kind of the devotion or the, at least the way we piqued people's interests. Because I think we would have resided more in the fan base wise, a lot of Manic Street Preachers fans you know, a lot of placebo fans, that kind of very, very devoted kind of thing. Mm. So it was a great starting point with regard to like bigger gigs. And it was, I remember it was, I think it was my 20th birthday when we played Glastonbury. Uh, so it was a pretty good way to celebrate 20th yeah. birthday. You know? Not bad. Not bad, yeah. Yeah, not bad at all. Yeah, I really remember that performance. I think I must have been watching it on the BBC coverage. Uh, but I remember the, the crowd reaction it got and really felt as though things were, really taken off for you guys at that point. Um, and yeah, it must've been yeah, really, so mind blowing for you, you know, especially as you say, he just turned 20. It, it was strange, really strange because <clears throat> even though one might go on about, spout on about these things, we're going to do this, 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 and this in interviews and things, then actually when it starts to happen, you'd be like, whoa, okay, hold on. <laughs> What's going on here? How do I handle this? <laughs> and it's actually interesting because even like a gig like that, I remember, I, I don't think I talked to the audience. I rarely talked to the audience. And it was simply because I was scared, scared. And I didn't know what to say because there was no, nothing could prepare you for that kind of thing, especially when you're, you know, 19 going on 20. Unless, of course, I know some people in bands, frontmen are great, are just blah, 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 talking about their songs and everything. But I was very much of the ilk of, you know, you let the songs talk for themselves. Why would you? give the audience a load of BS. They're not here to listen to you, some pseudo, pseudo philosophical guide on life. They're here to listen to your songs and see you. Um, so I think it was exhilarating, as they said, but I think a downside to that was perhaps not necessarily naivety, but I didn't know how to deal with communication in that sphere, literally in that sphere, you know, which, which is something I look back at and sometimes I think, oh, I wish I wish I had the confidence to communicate verbally 
the way I can now in certain situations back then with an audience because it, it could have been completely different, you know. Mm. What a different as an experience for yourself, or yeah, different, different experience, and also um, perhaps more enjoyable mm. uh, insofar as uh, wouldn't have been as reserved. And like we were quite reserved as a band, you know, we weren't big personalities with regards. We weren't extroverts or anything. So although those gigs got bigger, um, it was kind of difficult for us. You know, it wasn't something we knew how to deal with necessarily. Mm -hmm. Did you still feel comfortable up on stage in front of those big audiences or were you more comfortable in the studio, do you think? I haven't been on stage in front of an audience playing music for a long time. Um, in what I do now in real life, I, I do a lot of public speaking, uh, cause I work in education. I, I've, you know, make speeches and things a lot and I'm relatively comfortable with that. Um, so it's actually one of the reasons why I was thinking I need to do something in music again, cause I want to test it out. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see <laughs> if, 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 if it was to do with age, uh, and youth, or whether it's just something that when one is performing and being creative and playing to an audience, your own music, whether there's nothing you really need to say. You know, it's an interesting avenue to kind of go down. So I don't really know the answer to that, but hopefully, hopefully I'll find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what about that studio time for the debut album then, Mark? You know, the album did you know, really well when it came out. And as we said, there was a, great buzz about the band but what are your memories of being in the studio and, and putting it together it was great I mean it was the making of the record was really intense uh but fantastic it was very close-knit you know it was obviously as I said myself Hilary Fergal and then the producer Ian Capel he's just a great person and he was the right producer for us because as I said we were quite young so he knew how to get the best out of us without freaking us out completely and there was no no over the top stuff. There was no industry kind of talk and things like that in the studio. It was just he spent a lot of time with us when we were doing pre production in Dublin on the record. So you know, just in the rehearsal room, just bashing through the songs. And his attitude is very much they are what they are. Like you know, we, we need to obviously add a layer of production here. But it was pretty raw what he was listening to. So he knew that was probably the the you know the most powerful attribute of the band at the time. It was loud and the songs were very simple, like very simple, you know, verse. Yeah, you're maybe in some cases pre chorus. And a lot of the songs in that first album, for what I can remember, it wasn't even a pre chorus, it was just bang into the chorus, you know. So he he didn't mess with the songs a lot. And there was really that was a really happy time because we did pre production in Temple Bar, which is about 200 yards that way behind me. <laughs> and um, it was really enjoyable because we weren't overwhelmed by it because I don't think there were any real expectations at that point, you know. We signed with a, uh, an indie label, yes, albeit an imprint of Sony in Dublin. So again, the close-knit thing was we, we dealt with two guys here in Dublin who were, who were great. There were no record executives in our ears about anything. Then we went, we went, we recorded the first album in a Chipping Norton, in the studio in Chipping Norton, who uh, I can't remember who else recorded there, like, you know, one of these legendary places. But again, it was a very quick turnaround. You know, considering that there was there was quite a buzz about us even before we made the album. I think we did it in two weeks and 
you know, relatively good. I know other bands go in and just bash out stuff live, but that was pretty good for the record it came out with. Mm. It was a great experience. So we just worked 24-7 on it. And it was, uh, <clears throat> you know, that feeling when you're in a room with people and you know every single person in that room, that's exactly where they want to be at that moment in time. And they're completely committed to it. Uh, so there were no question marks over anything. The process or the potential output, we, we knew we were just doing our best. And then, of course, when you're that young and haven't necessarily recorded a proper studio, then we started doing strings because there were strings in a couple of the songs, like Oxygen being one of them. When we put the strings on that, that was a moment of just, wow, this is just, this is amazing because you're directing string players. Mm -hmm. And it's something that two years beforehand, it was just a dream, you know? And presumably, I don't know where you wrote Oxygen, but to, to then hear it, with all those layers on it, that must have been yeah, a really cool moment. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, the demos we did for the first album, I my first instrument was violin. So when we demoed it, we demoed it with a great producer, actually. Uh, he's he's excellent live sound engineer, Mark Carolyn, who's now, he's Muse's live sound engineer. And Muse, rightly so, uh, pinched him from us when we toured with them. <laughs> they heard how loud we sounded, how big we sounded. And two months later, he was going, listen, guys, I'm getting offered X amount over here. I was like, yeah, fair play. <laughs> and I think we know, we all know how that's worked out. <laughs> so, um, but I remember distinctly, you know, being in the studio with him doing demos of songs like Oxygen. And I was a violin player. He was a violin player. So we were going, let's put some strings in this. So the string arrangement for Oxygen is pretty much the same from what we demoed to yeah. what was then put on the record when we put the strings on in London. So it was, you know, it was good. So it was, it was truly organic in that sense, you know? Yeah, nice. So Oxygen, October Swimmer, Snow was another one I loved on that album. But yeah, Oxygen seemed to just take off. And was that the one that you played on top of the Pops? Is that right? Yeah, well, we did. Uh, we did Top of the Pops uh, three or four times, I think. So we did, hmm. yeah, I think, we, yeah. So we did Oxygen, October Swimmer, Snow, something else on top of the pops but uh, yeah oxygen was the one that i think was more or less like what they call the lead single is it was the mm. one the timing was perfect i remember doing reading and leads in 2000 and there were the huge screens either side of the main stage and somehow someone clever in whatever our pr people or somebody got oxygen on those large screens in between bands so essentially, we might as well have been playing the main stage. So they were seeing <laughs> snippets of the Oxygen video over and over. And that undoubtedly had a huge impact, you know. Um, but yeah, it was Oxygen was a big song. Uh, it's, it's difficult to pick out one song that was like means more than the others um, because they were all very meaningful at different points. But uh, it seemed to be the one that gained traction, initial traction for us as a band. Mm -hmm. very important obviously led to tours with bands like Coldplay Embrace Muse you must have some good stories from those days already, already heard about how Muse have been yeah. pinching your stuff any other good stories for us from those big tours uh anything I can tell uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was great we, we toured Europe with Muse um they were a little ahead of us at the time regarding you know, their album had been released before ours but we were kind of there were similarities and kind of like-minded in certain areas, aspects of things. I do remember when we toured at Muse, the first gig we did with them was in the Paradiso in Amsterdam. And 
uh, I was kind of, I think I was just delighted to be playing that venue because I was a huge Joy Division fan. And I think that was the first European gig that Joy Division ever did. So I was just more, wow, this is where Inters played. So I was on that stage and this is brilliant. But I do remember distinctly uh, that first night seeing Muse perform and we were watching from side of the stage and myself and Ferro was like, whoa, this is, this is a different world. Like this is a different level as musicians, what they were doing. So I do remember it kind of been, it was a moment, it was a joyous moment insofar as we're getting to tour with this band and watch them every night. But also it was somewhat deflating because it was like, oh, damn it, I knew I should learn more than a C major to an A minor. <laughs> I should learn those scales. But uh, it was a great, great tour. Lots of fun. And uh, it was also a lot of fun because Muse were just starting to blow up at that point. It was really on that album, was kicking off for them. So it was great to see that and be part of it. Um, so we did, we did some great tours with bands like Muse. Um, and we learned a lot from them. Uh, but, you know, we didn't, as I said earlier, you know, we, I don't know, I, can, I suppose I can only speak for myself. I don't want to speak for uh, Hilary or Fergal, but we were relatively introverted. You know, we weren't, and again, I don't know if I regret it or not, but we were never ones to be knocking on the, the main act's door, going, hey, guys, thanks so much for this, however. Um, and I do remember seeing other bands around us doing that at the time. Um, but we kind of thought it was a bit naff, but, you know, mm. networking and all that, maybe we should have done for that, I don't know. <laughs> well, you've got to be true to yourselves. I think that's that's fair, that's fair enough, isn't it? Um, what about the reception back home then, Mark? You know, amidst these huge tours, I'd imagine the Irish public were pretty proud of you guys. You know, I know you won an Irish Music Award pretty early on. Um, so, yeah, what was that reception like back home? No, it was great. It was, um, I think it was... You know, it's going to the UK first really worked as in, and I don't mean that, and I know you just disrespect the way to Ireland because I love Ireland, but um, it kind of proved one way my initial thoughts were about having to get away from Dublin. Um, it proved them right, which was I wanted to do something in the UK, and we knew then Ireland would follow suit. And again, at that time, that's kind of what happened. It's, it's very different now. You know, if you look at some of the post-punk scene in Dublin, things like Fontaines and stuff like that, mm. it's different. But at that time, that's pretty much the way it still was. And that, that was a residual from the 80s as well. You know, like bands like U2, yeah, getting to a certain level in Ireland, but having to go to the UK or further afield. So we were still in that kind of generation of bands, I think, where we had to do it. So then when we did start to do things in the UK. It was a lot easier for us, obviously, to get more notice in Ireland in a, in a mainstream perspective because I'm kind of being a bit unfair because some of our earliest supporters were definitely in Ireland, like on 2FM, one of the main radio stations. Dave Fanning, who's a legendary um, legendary music expert who DJ and presenter and stuff. Like, he was one of the first who called us in. We were, I think we were, we did demo and he got us to re-recorded in the studio, went out live into FM or something. So, you know, he, he was one of the first supporters of, of us. But when we did have a bit of success, we came back and it was, it was an amazing feeling to have, to, you know, to be in a record store doing a signing and your parents are there, you know, and people you're in school with go, what? Hold on, I was sitting in the classroom with you last year. What's going on here? Um, so that, that was amazing. That's, that's a great buzz. Um, but we never, to be honest, we, we didn't 
focus on Ireland as a place where we really wanted to like be huge or something like that. We never did that. Um, so it's it's quite strange. There are a lot of bands in Ireland who are who are successful still, even from that era or before us, uh, simply because they never went away. <laughs> <laughs> I never I never wanted us to be a band like that. You know, I wanted us just to exist, and then when it's done, it's done, rather yeah. than keep on going unnecessarily. You know, and ruining the legacy of what you've done. I'm already on top of myself in trouble. If anyone in the Irish music scene listens to this, they'll you know, be annoyed at me. So, <laughs> generalisation, but you know. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, we'll take a quick break there, Mark, and we'll get more of the JJ72 story after this. Hi, I'm Mark, formerly of JJ72, and you're listening to Boys in the Band podcast. Diamond for diamond, no one compares with Mervis. At Mervis Diamond Importers, our natural diamonds come straight from the mines in Africa and our mermaid lab-grown diamonds beat all others for quality and value. Come view our brilliant diamonds, both natural and lab-grown. Mervis diamonds are so bright and full of fire, they will blow you away. So will the affordable prices. Our diamonds may steal your heart, but not your wallet. See our mermaid lab-grown diamonds and learn how to get a larger diamond for less. You can get a bigger mermaid lab-grown diamonds than you ever thought possible. And with Mervis Financing, you can enjoy up to five years to pay with zero interest. Our generous full-value trader policy and our lifetime warranty program easily make Mervis your first choice. When you mount a world-class Mervis diamond into a designer ring from our huge collection, there is no equal. Mervis Diamond Importers. For an appointment, call 800-HER-LOVE or go to MervisDiamond.com. Again, that's 800 her love or go to MervisDiamond.com. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more Naughty's nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys of the Band podcast, where we're joined by Mark from JJ72. Now, we discussed the success of that debut album, and you followed that one up with another top 20 album in Eye to Sky in October 2002. Now, as a common theme, we often hear that the, that transition from promoting that first album into getting back into the studio or sitting down to write that second album isn't always easy. Uh, but that second record, you know, got some you know, really good critical acclaim and it charted pretty decently as well. So it appeared that you guys got it right. Um, so how was that process different for you guys compared to the first album? Well, I don't know if we got it right, Rich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was difficult because um, we, we I, don't, I, don't know, I wouldn't say made a mistake, but I certainly, you know, realist about it. We took a while to get that album out. And there was a lot of... There was a lot of expectations. The band, it's a lot of bands of that era. You know, I'm sure you've you've heard this before, but it's true where the successful first album and then all of a sudden there are figures been bandied about as in the second one will do a million. That's what they, you know, were targeting in the UK alone. It's kind of like, whoa, 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 hold on. Whoa, whoa. calm down, everyone. And when you're in a position, the way the position we were in after the first album, you know, I wanted to work with a certain producer, Flood, who'd uh, produced some of my favourite records, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, Depeche Mode, U2. And we found out Flood was a huge fan of the band. So we worked with Flood on that second record. And whether that was the right thing to do, I don't know. It was 
it was an experience and we created an interesting record out of it. Uh, but I don't know if we worked with someone like Flood a little too soon. I, I, I'm wondering if we should have, you know, maybe stuck with Ian who produced our first record and kind of develop our sound in a more measured way. We, we tried to take a giant step in our second album and it works in parts. I'm really, really proud of that record because we tried things out. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. And I think that is reflected then in the, the reception to it. Critically, it, you know, got very good reviews and things, but mm. sales-wise, it didn't gain traction because a lot changed just in that brief period from our first record to when we were releasing our second, i.e. the Libertines. <laughs> you know? So we kind of, on our second record, instead of it being a straightforward kind of open goal, it became more of a, I think some people critically as well might've thought, what is, what's this kind of behemoth of like, just because some of the stuff has lots of layers to it. Is in a way is the antithesis of that, you know, simple live recording of bands like Libertines, that kind of punk ethos. We were going off in some a different direction. So we were lucky with the timing, the first one. We were in the right place at the right time. And it was a very good record, the first one. The second one, very good record, I think, but the wrong environment. That's really interesting, Mark. So you think that so we're talking about two years difference between yeah. the two albums being released, but you noticed a distinct change in what audiences or fans of guitar music wanted from their bands just within that two year shift. Totally. I remember, I think we were actually mixing the second record. Um, I can't remember where it was. It was one of the, you know, again, legendary studios somewhere in London. And uh, I was in and out of the, the studio it was Flood and Alan Mulder again, who's, you know, a legend who was working on the record and they were mixing and stuff. And it was, it was great, great experience. But I remember that summer, 2002, uh, I'd be in the studio and Fergal would be too and Hillary, but normally Fergal kind of be sitting in front of the TV. <laughs> and I remember going to make a cup of tea or something and walking by Fergal, watch the TV and he had MTV on. He was like, here, man, let's just look at this now. I'm kind of worried. <laughs> Whatever was M- MTV, it was it was the opposite of us. I, I don't know if it was the Libertines or who it was. I don't even know if it was MTV, but it was a music channel. And it just, everything felt like it was shifting. Everything felt that it was shifting into what we know then happened from that kind of point on, you know, with those really exciting bands. Uh, we kind of clocked it even when we were mixing the record going, are we kind of out of time here? <laughs> are we <laughs> this... You know, because we were on the first record, Enemy loved us, all that sort of stuff. And then, as we know, and everyone understands, you know, anything with music industry or anything to do with journalism generally is, is fickle, you know. So straight away we're going, oh, this isn't going to resonate necessarily with Enemy or anything like that. We're not cool. Not that we ever were. We weren't cool on our first album, but we had supporters, you know, in those kind of areas of music media. So we had a feeling it wasn't going to do maybe it wasn't going to reach the expectations that certain people had of it. What did you think yeah. about those, those sort of bands and that that new music that was coming then? Did we were you into that music or was it not to your taste? Uh, some of it, I, th- I think I wasn't. I didn't fully get it because, as I said, my background was more the nineties thing, you know, mm. and 
and I, I mean this with complete due respect, by the way, but I think it was very English what happened, you know, with mm. a lot of those bands. And we couldn't associate with that. Uh, sorry, we couldn't identify with that for obvious reasons. You know, mm. as I said before, one of them, like when I was a teenager, the things that influenced me were his Irish literature, it was James Joyce, you know, Samuel Beckett. It was great Irish poets. It was uh, notions of Brendan Behan drinking Guinness in MacDade's pub, which again is only a hundred yards that way. <laughs> and and I, I love the idea also of the kind of the revenants of say Joyce leaving Ireland, but always writing about it and the romanticism of that. Those were the things that were anchors for me creatively. So it was difficult for me to associate with the libertines and the little world they built and presented to people because it was pretty much alien to me, you know? So it wasn't that I, it wasn't the, the quality of music didn't resonate. It was more the message or the creative motivation behind it didn't resonate with me. Yeah, no, amazing how quickly things change. Yeah, sorry, yeah sorry, to ju- sorry to jump in, Rich, but I was just thinking then that just got me thinking about um, when we had uh, one of the guys from the Kaiser Chiefs on. He was saying that they, that that was a band that went through lots of different um, sort of almost styles before they landed on what they were going to do and i think preston from the ordinary boys said that that was a band again which was playing different styles of music almost by different months and it just happened that yeah it clicked when they were an indie band and that scene took off but there was never a temptation i guess for you guys obviously not at this point when your records in in production but later on to think do do we need to adapt to try and hit what's popular at the moment Listen, honestly, the answer to that is, yeah, I mean, we we made a mistake because uh, we flash forward like after the second record, um, basically uh, Hillary left the band uh, and then we got another bass player, Sarah, who was brilliant, you know, amazing musician. We made a third album, it's never released, but we were quite confused. I was quite confused and unclear myself as to what I wanted to make. And the result of that was a third album that we ended up going down a route of being trying to be quite commercial and very pop. And um, well, it didn't work because it wasn't it wasn't honest. We should have gone way off left field and done something or at least explored areas of stuff that, you know, always interested me as a teenager. And my my background is classical musician and uh, we didn't do that. And that was, I think, to answer your question, sorry, I'm, I'm doing it as kind of circuitous way, but that was basically a reaction to the the, the scene at the time um, and trying to keep things snappy and big choruses and whoa, whatever, <laughs> and all that Kaiser Chief stuff. And it just, it wasn't us. So that's why it, it didn't it didn't work. That's why the band essentially folded was because it's, it's kind of cheesy, but we didn't stay true to what we originally were um and i think that was um i wouldn't say panic but definitely a kind of uh uh-oh what are we going to do here you know we didn't feel like we belonged in any particular area anymore so that was difficult and so is that ultimately what what led to the split was it was it sort of the 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 sort of head head banging over over these these new this new direction you were trying yeah, it was. I, I think so. But it was also just basically, you know, and again, being totally honest, it was basically the cliched stuff of, or sorry, the, the stereotypical stuff, you know, that happens in record labels. 
the industry itself was going through such a period of change at that time. And a lot of the big labels were scrambling to insert clauses about online music and everything um, at that time. That was like when we signed a record deal, we were 1998. I think the clause about online music was about three sentences long, <laughs> you know, and, and again, that shows how quickly things change. Yeah. Um, we, we were essentially, our third album was put in a shelf um, because all the people in what was then Sony independent network Europe, all they changed. The person who signed us was this uh, great guy, Mark Chung, who I was absolutely awestruck when he, he was kind of the boss of, the label we signed to because he was in a band called Einster Zenda Neubauten and he were one of my favorite bands industrial 80s kind of pre-industrial pre-nine inch nails post-punk band and he was this executive in Sony so I always knew that he understood us because I was like wow I loved your band and he was surprised this teenager even had heard of Einster Zenda and uh he went loads of the people who were there as part of our journey in the first album went. There was a complete overhaul of that company. And we had people come in who, I don't blame them in any way. It's, it was business, but who just kind of didn't get it because it was, where does this fit in? Is it sellable in the current environment? I think it was. I think our third album, which hopefully we will put online one day properly, some really good record, sorry, really good kind of pop songs on it. But at that time, it didn't fit, you know. That was going to be one of our questions, um, obviously talking about online music there, but uh, current age, you can put this music out there. Is, is that something you you might look to do with that, that third album? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, to be honest, I I kind of stepped away from everything as far as like JD72, first and second album wasn't even on Spotify up until a year ago in the UK and Ireland anyway. I think it was in different territories and it was a licensing thing and blah, blah, blah. And we put it up about a year ago. Um, a record label contacted me who were interested in, you know, doing some JD72 vinyl stuff. And I was like, yeah, maybe. One of the first things they said was, you should probably get your stuff up on Spotify. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Can you do that? I, <laughs> you know, and it's been great because since it's even been up, you know, yeah, you see how many listeners you have and it kind of reminds me of that there's value in it. Uh, so the third record, the unreleased record, yeah, I'd love to release it. Um, I'd love to do something. There's a whole bunch of things. We've been offered lots of stuff, to, you know, to to do a reunion gig and all that sort of thing and and release vinyls and all sorts of stuff. But I don't know. I'm not sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're now head of education at the British and Irish Modern Music Institute, mm. Mark. So tell us about that and um, obviously a different role for you at the moment. Yeah, Um uh, yeah, basically, I mean, when we when we go back to the JJs, the kind of nascent stages of JJs, it was we decided to not go to university because we were going on tour, which was mm. the right decision. <laughs> um, that was our kind of three-year degree program was going on tour and seeing all these amazing places and meeting amazing people. And that experience is just, you know, fantastic. But then I was lucky enough that... Um, Around 2003, 2004, when I was kind of beginning to question whether I was, you know, what I needed to do. I was living in New York at the time and I did, I, I went back to study in New York, did some postgrad stuff and then 
when I came back to Dublin, yeah, BIM, British and Irish Modern Music Institute, uh, set up in Dublin. And I got a call out of the blue from someone just going, would you be interested in doing, trying out a bit of teaching? And I really thought I'll, I'll last two weeks in this and I'll be gone. <laughs> uh, but I got involved with, from the very set, the setup here in Dublin. And in the first few weeks of teaching, I was like, wow, this is, this is such a relief. I think it was a relief because uh, it was one of the first times I was standing in front of people, a group of people, and it wasn't about me trying to do something to impress or to make them feel something. It was actually me asking something of them, going, right, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, and it was great. It was a great feeling, you know. And then, of course, teaching when you have the experience of, like, say, what I did in JJ's, uh, it, it enriches what you can share with people. Um, so I, I just got into teaching, and then what followed was just getting more involved with BIM generally. Uh, so then I did further study. Um, yeah, and basically BIM has kind of been my main part of my life, and but it was always important to me to to bring to BIM uh, some of my core values that I brought to JJ's because I think it's important, you know, that when you go through experience like having a band and get to do all those amazing things like be on top of pops tour the world have hit records and stuff like that you can't just park it and look at it as it's in the shadows back there somewhere you need to utilize it in some way and i mean ultimately what we have in bim dublin and i'm not trying to do an advert here for bim dublin it's more in relation to creativity and musical output and specifically irish musical output is, you know, we have bands and graduates who've, like Fontaine's DC, all graduates of BIM Dublin. Uh, I would have taught them, a lot, a lot of, you know, my colleagues taught them and stuff. And the, the, some of the, the values that we put in front of the students were things to do with literature, things to do with cultural studies and sociological studies and how music doesn't exist in a vacuum on its own. And that was really important. And that's what we do in BIM Dublin. That's what then we have Murder Capital, our graduates of ours. It's loads of bands. Jafaris, lots of really diverse things coming out of Dublin. Um, so it's a great place to be. In other words, it's not, it's not that far removed from what I was doing when I was 19, standing up in front of a couple of thousand people. It's actually quite similar with regard to the, the motivation to do it, you know? Yeah, amazing. Uh, really impressive to hear that, actually, Mark. You know, I think you you really can hear those those aspects you talk about there, you know, the, the cultural elements, for example, uh, in bands like Fontaine DC. So, yeah, it sounds like uh, really great work you're doing there. Awesome. Thanks. Um, we're going to wrap things up, Mark, if we can, with our final three questions of our encore. Um, and the first one is something we, we read in our research, by you. Is, is it right that you, li you live next door to Phil Leonard from Thin Lizzy? <laughs> is that right? Oh, yeah. Um, that was when I was growing up. Uh, I, I grew up in a suburb of uh, Dublin called Clontarf and Phil Linnet was, grew up in Sut, uh, he, he lived in Sutton and Hope, which are close by uh, suburbs. But the story was that, yeah, that at one point, the house next door to our family home, Phil Linnet lived there. But then later on in life, I heard that uh, someone said, oh, yeah, yeah, you live where? Oh, yeah. Frank Stapleton lived next door to you, <laughs> which I thought was extremely random. Another Irish hero, but it was like, 
right, so this is just some <laughs> myth going around. <laughs> so you weren't going and knocking on his door or anything like that. Yeah. It wasn't quite yeah. like that. <laughs> okay. uh, second question on the the uh, encore, Mark. Uh, what was the best gig you did as uh, JJ seventy two? Um, I think there were ones that w- were meant to be the best gigs. Like we we did a we toured with you two, and then we did Slane Castle, um, yeah. and that was yeah, that was. Um, we were we were I think we were pretty bad though we were dreadful <laughs> um, but it was an experience and it was good to have one take that one off I think the best gig I have a memory of um some reason Manchester excuse me I think it was the first album yeah it was it was the first album uh Manchester Uni I think and it was at a point in the first album where everything just was really intense in the best way. I remember playing this gig and the crowd seemed huge. I don't know what it was. I don't know what the, the capacity of Manchester Uni, the hall was or is, but um, the crowd were totally with us, as in every syllable, every word of every song has been screamed back. And there was an absolute moment of synergy. And we did the obligatory smashing up the stage at the end, <laughs> which was absolutely great fun I think a couple of fans hopped up and helped us out (laughs) and it was it was kind of that gig I remember it was wild because it was living out the stuff you have as dreams as a teenager like the Nirvana situation of just I remember having my head against the cab of an amp like I'm sure that's part of the tinnitus uh, situation now but just the noise and the being in a different place a different world and I always remember that um and funny enough, then years later, I, I worked in Manchester for a year um, as part of what I do now. And I remember going to gigs in the uni and um, also placing Oldham Street, a uh, classic venue. I remember playing there. It was one of our first gigs in the UK. So anyway, that gig and Manchester for some reason. Well, I know why, you know, all yeah. the great bands and Joy Division and all the rest, you know, even though I know they weren't Manchester per se, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. but always a strong crowds up in Manchester. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sounds like a good one. Um, right, last up, Martin, possibly a toughie, but uh, can you pick out a JJ72 song that you're most proud of? Yeah, okay. Um, okay, without getting too deep about it, uh, there's a song on the second album called Sinking. Um, it's quite a long song. It's a bit of a dirge, but it was, I think, captured where we could have gone as a band. Okay. Uh, if circumstances have been different, it was it was the beginning of something, and very honest song about mental health, re- really. Which at the time, again, it's really interesting. It was only twenty years ago. It wasn't something you necessarily spoke about generally, even in interviews and things like that. And so I look at a lot of that second album. There's a lot of things going on with me and potentially the other two guys in the band. But that song captured a lot, I think, at that moment. And it was perhaps a portal into somewhere else that we didn't walk through. It's very interesting. I'll have to go and listen to that with uh, through New New Year's. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> is, that, is that phrase? I don't think it is. But yeah. Mark, excellent. Thanks very much for coming onto the podcast. It's been really interesting to hear that JJ72 story. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the invite. Yeah, our pleasure. We we'll look forward to uh, yeah, to, to hearing that 
never release third album and, and send you some solo material soon as well. So, yeah, yeah, hopefully. Exciting hopefully. times. Thanks a lot.